0: Welcome back to Will Wright Catholic. Today we are looking at part four, session four of Praying the Mass, a five-part series on the Holy Liturgy and how we can enter more deeply into the sacred action of our High Priest Jesus Christ at the Mass. It's wonderful to have you with us. If you haven't listened to the first three sessions in this series, I highly recommend it. Everything uh, that I say from one session and the next really builds on the proceeding. So if this is your first time joining us, welcome. Uh, I would just look back for session one of praying the mass and then listen to that as well as two and three and then jump in to this ma- uh, praying the mass session four. Just one other piece of business before we dive into today's session. Uh, WillWriteCatholic.com, the podcast and Substack stack, is uh, now open for paid subscriptions. All of the podcasts will remain completely free. So all that's needed to access those is a free subscription online, and you'll get those directly to your email, or you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, but this, uh, this paid subscription will be a paywall for... Really, just articles that I write that are commentary. So anything catechetical, anything theological, anything uh, that is part of the podcast will remain on the free side of things. But if you'd like uh, to get some of my commentary and a deeper dive into current events, I just wrote about a 5,000 word uh, long form essay on what's going on in Germany with the German synodal way. as it's called. And so if you'd like to check that out again, go to willwrightcatholic.com and you'll see that there's an option to sign up for a seven day free trial, or it's $5 a month or $45 a year, or there's a founding member subscription that you can kind of set your price. That would help me pay for the podcasting microphone I'm using right now, any other software or hardware that I might need, as well as just making time um, to record more content, write more articles, those sorts of things. so if this becomes sort of a a supplemental income for my family, uh, then I can set more aside more time aside uh, to devote to it. So if this is something that's blessed you, that's helped you, that's been a, a good thing in your life, created value, uh, please consider subscribing it would uh, would be a great grace to my family and so I appreciate your your thoughts on that. But in general, I'd ask that you continue to pray for the success, success of this podcast and uh, continue to pray for me. I definitely need those prayers uh, as, a, as a husband, as a father, as a teacher, uh, and as a writer and podcaster. So I rely on that. I rely on God's grace, and I thank you for your support. So without further ado, let's dive into session four of Praying the Mass here on Will Wright Catholic. Alright, so welcome back to session four of Praying the Mass. I'm thrilled to share with you today the Liturgy of the Eucharist, at least part one. We're going to be looking at a few different things, uh, but especially the five essential elements of the Eucharistic prayer. So getting us back into context with the prayers of the faithful now completed, the Offertory begins with the presentation of the gifts. And, And there's two words being used, right? Gifts and offerings. Bread and wine are brought to the altar and prayers of offering and blessing are made. And this presentation of the gifts, the bread and wine, and the preparation of the altar is getting us ready to enter into the most sacred part of the Holy Mass. The bread and wine now present on the altar are gifts because all created things come from God. Without the act of creation and the sustaining of being itself, we wouldn't have bread and wine to offer in the first place. Even from the earliest days— Humanity has offered the first fruits of their harvest or flock back to God in thanksgiving. Even the pagans of old did this. Recognizing an abundant harvest or a healthy flock or even the birth of a child as a gift from the divine is not isolated just to Christianity and Judaism. In the oldest pagan religions, armed only with God-given human reason, there's an understanding that there's a higher power which created and sustains all things. And so, we can rightly say that bread and wine, which are offered at Mass, are gifts. But that's not all. Our own lives are a gift. The churches in which we worship are gifts. Um, the vestments, sacred vessels, the artwork, all of this, all of these are gifts. And without God, there, there is nothing. Everything we have is a gift in a very real sense. St. Therese of Lisieux said, Everything is a grace. Uh, she once was uh, was sweeping the floors in the convent and she fell and she hurt herself. And as she's laying there, she just had this smile on her face and she said, everything is grace. Now, her fellow sisters and us might look at that and go, man, she, she's kind of crazy. But no, I think she's probably more sane than maybe we are. That she really recognizes that everything is a grace. And this brings us really to the idea of offering, because it implies sacrifice. The bread and wine are offerings because they're set aside for sacred use. Ordinary bread and wine are placed upon the altar with the full expectation of the miracle that is to come. These gifts are being offered for a specific purpose, namely to make Christ present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, under the veil of a sacrament. And the bread and wine are not the only things being offered. We offer God each day our works, joys, sufferings in union with the action of Jesus at the altar, at Holy Mass. As St. Paul says in Romans 12, uh, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so everything we do throughout our day, which is intentionally united to Christ, is our spiritual offering. In offering ourselves, we're transformed to be more like Christ, just as the bread and wine become Christ. We can also offer all of the many requests and intentions that we have. We offer all that we are next to the bread on the paten and the chalice with the wine. Finally, the bread and wine are holy and unblemished sacrifices. When the bread and wine are set aside for sacred use, they can't be used any longer as ordinary food. And in a simple simple sense, this is sacrifice. Even when off animals were being offered in sacrifice, they can't be used for normal purpose anymore. Uh, they're, they're burned up. And so when we understand that we're uniting ourselves to this offering at Mass— we come to realize that the content of our day-to-day lives is the sacrifice that we're offering. These sacrifices are acts of love. Maybe it's cleaning the dishes so your spouse doesn't have to do it, or practicing virtue rather than vice, setting aside time for prayer, or striving to live the commands of Jesus Christ each moment of the day. Then at Holy Mass, we offer these actions, as well as our failings, alongside the bread and wine. We become a sacrifice offered to God in humility, holy because we're set apart by God in our baptism, unblemished because we're set right with God by our baptism, frequent reception of the sacrament of penance, and by being transformed by our receiving of holy communion in a state of grace. So next comes the prayer over the offerings. During Sunday Mass, the collection is taken during the prayer over the offerings, And this is a chance for the assembly to make their tithing a liturgical action. It's not merely uh, transactional. It's not merely just putting money in a plate. It's actually a liturgical action where we're offering something that we want, money, and we're offering that in sacrifice. So just as the gifts of bread and wine are offered, so too are our first fruits. Now, during this preparation, you might see the deacon or priest pour wine into the chalice at the altar, and then a bit of water as well. And they're also quietly saying one of the, the secret prayers of the Mass. Now, these aren't secret like we can't know what they are. They're secret just in, it's a Latin term, secretum, which just means quiet, right? So just silent. Um, and they say this, By the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. Now, water in most places of the world is a fairly common thing. This is symbolic of humanity. Yet, wine is expensive and takes a long time to make, and this is symbolic of divinity. When the water and wine are mixed, can they be separated again? No, they can't. And so it is with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now, just as a side note, I found this interesting. The Byzantine tradition takes this symbolism a step further. During divine liturgy, Warm water is added to the wine during the preparatory prayers, Um, like warm warm water from a a kettle, that is, because the blood of a living man is warm. So, very interesting. Uh, Turning to the people after the offertory prayers, the priest says the erate fratris in Latin, which is, pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. Now, the reason I bring up the Latin, orate, is, is because it's a, it's a command. It's not a prayer. It's, it's more of an invitation or a command. And the people then respond, speaking to the priest. Again, it's not a prayer. They're saying this to the priest. They're saying, may the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands for the praise and glory of his name, for our good and the good of all his holy church. And so this beautiful exchange is a call to action. The priest is about to enter into the Holy of Holies to offer the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ in the person of Christ, head of his body. And the people offer sacrifice as well, but in a different way as members of the body of Christ. Also, the people are acknowledging that the sacrifice being offered is one, primarily at the hands of the priest, and two is for the praise and glory of God. And three is for the making holy, the sanctification of the people. And it's really worth noting that after the priest says the Orate fratres, and he's offering the mass in the ad orientum posture, where he's, he's facing uh, with the people towards God, towards the altar, towards uh, the tabernacle and the crucifix, the Roman Missal does not direct him to turn back towards the people and tell the behold the Lamb of God. And the reason for this is because he's in the fight. His attention and ours should then be entirely fixed upon entering into the sacred action of the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ presented once more outside of space and time. Really, the fabric of space and time are folded in upon themselves, and we become present in those sacred moments so long ago by the power of God. Attention entirely fixed upon the task at hand, the priest begins the Eucharistic prayer by saying, Dominus vobiscum, the Lord be with you. And the people respond, et cum spirito tuo, and with your spirit. And this small exchange isn't really a greeting. The priest is acknowledging that in our baptism, we are members of the body of Christ. And as members of the body of Christ, we offer ourselves in union with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we say, and with your spirit, because we're acknowledging that by the power of the Holy Spirit in his ordination, the priest is acting in the person of Christ, the head of his body. We're not speaking of your spirit as the priest's human spirit. We're acknowledging his priestly spirit in Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And next, the priest says, Sursum corda," or lift up your hearts. And the people respond, Habemus ad dominum, or we lift them up to the Lord. Literally in Latin, this response means something like, we hold towards the Lord. This means we're lifting our hearts now, or we already have been lifting them up and will continue to do so. And God, ever patient, is giving us another chance to clue in to the miracle in front of us before we charge into the breach in the battle of prayer. And then the priest says, Gratias agamus domino deo nostro, or let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And the people reclaimed at Eustamaster, it is right and just. See, it's right for us to give thanks to God because that's why human beings were ultimately created. We were made to worship God. And it's just because God alone deserves glory and praise. This ancient dialogue of the preface dialogue begins the Eucharistic prayer. It reminds us of who we are as priests and people, head and members of the body of Christ, as we talked so much about uh, last session in session three of this uh, course. And it reminds us of our active internal role in entering into the sacrifice of the mass. It reminds us of the glory due to God and our role in offering him praise. So the first essential part of the Eucharistic prayer, I said we'd mentioned five. Well, the first one is the preface for the day, which is then offered by the priest. And these prefaces change depending on the season of the church liturgical year and the feast, solemnity, or memorial that's being celebrated. Directly following the preface and just before the beginning of the Eucharistic prayer comes the sanctus, the holy, holy, holy. And this ancient prayer was added to the sacred liturgy in the first half of the fifth century. So this is old; it's a very old prayer, and it's drawn from Isaiah six three as well as Matthew twenty one nine. And the preface and the song specifically call to mind the angels and reminds us that we are praising God with all of the angels and saints in heaven present with us. Heaven is touching earth, and we are present for this spectacular event. In 1962 Roman Missal, there's a beautiful insight into the rubrics. At the word Sanctus, the priest joins his hands and he bows in humble adoration of God. And then at the words Benedictus qui venit in nomine domini, or blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, he stands fully and makes the sign of the cross. See, in the midst of the angels and the saints, the grace of God is pouring out upon us and blessing us as we enter into the great action of Jesus Christ in the remainder of the Eucharistic prayer. This is no longer called for in the rubrics of the 1970 Missal, but the spirit of the theological significance is no less for us. The Sanctus is one of the oldest congregational hymns in existence. In Greek, it's the tone eponikion hymnon, or the hymn of victory and I butchered the Greek. I I don't know how to speak Greek very well, but I don't know how to speak Greek at all. Um, But this is the final part of the Eucharistic preface, and it's said or sung at every single Mass in the Latin Rite. The hymn also exists in some form in all but one of the Eastern Rites of the Catholic Church. So this is something that's very clearly important to the liturgy. Historically, in the Latin Church, the bells were rung at the start of the Sanctus to signal that the Roman canon was coming imminently. So let's walk through the Sanctus piece by piece. First, we have these words Sanctus, 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 Dominus Deus Sabaot, uh, or Holy, 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 Lord God of Hosts. There's two main points of interest I want to draw out here. The first is the repetition of the word Holy, and the other is the word Hosts. In English, and many other languages, there are words that we call comparatives and superlatives. Uh, So, for example, we have the word good, but we have the comparative better and the superlative best. In Hebrew, this construction did not exist. And so, to say better, you would say good, good. And to say best, you would say good, good, good. Therefore, to say holy, holy, holy is saying that God is the most holy. It's also a call to worship, often done in threes. And we can think, for example, of the popular Christmas chant where we sing, O come let us adore him, or venite adoramus, which is repeated three times. And of course, the repetition of three also refers to the Trinity. Right. Like most things in the church, there's multiple levels of meaning. We are a both and church rather than an either or. Okay, so the word hosts. the word hosts refers to the heavenly hosts of angels, which St. Luke refers to in his account of the birth of Jesus. And these legions of angels, really, we could say that hosts means armies. These legions of angels do the will of God and bring him glory. And they're with us in the fight and they join us in worship of him. As Dr. Han, uh, Dr. Scott Hahn wrote so eloquently in his book, Signs of Life, he says, when we go to mass, the congregation is never small. Even if it's non-existent in terms of human attendance, the angels are there, as is evident, even in the words of the mass. And so with all the choirs of angels, we sing holy, holy, holy. The mass itself cries out for us to be aware of our angels. Because don't forget, you and I have guardian angels. The priest has a special guardian angel. Each parish has a guardian angel. And so there's angels all over the place. Next up, we hear Planisuncte Celia Terra Gloria tua, or Heaven and Earth are full of Your glory, and of course we're giving praise to God, acclaiming the truth that for those with the eyes of faith, He's recognizable all around. All things are directed ultimately to Him. Uh, so the next lines in the song too are Hosanna in excelsis, Benedictus qui venit in nomine Domini, Hosanna in excelsis, sir. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And this refers uh, primarily first to the cry of the people as Christ entered Jerusalem to the sight of palm branches being waved. This is reminiscent of King Solomon's entrance into Jerusalem. But the people exclaimed of Christ, they said in Matthew 21, 9, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What does that word mean? Hosanna means praise to the Lord. And so we're offering praise to the Father for the gift of the Son. And in this hymn, the coming of, the, of Christ in the Nativity is called to mind. But we know that Christ will also come again. And so the Sanctus reminds us in a very special way that Christ comes to us now. At the Mass, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus become present under the veil of a sacrament on the altar. The Sanctus, with its mention of the angels and the triumph of Christ, is like a bridge between heaven and earth. The Lord of heaven and earth is drawing us deep into his heart. The eternal self offering of the Son to the Father and the Spirit is veiled before us by signs and symbols, but there's no doubt that the holy sacrifice of the Mass, especially in the Eucharistic prayer, is a foretaste of heaven. Now there's a there's currently a few different options for the Eucharistic prayer, properly speaking. However, they they all contain two more essential parts: the epiclesis and the institution narrative. Epiclesis is a Greek word. It uh, the Latin equivalent would be invocatio, which in, is a cognate in English. It's invocation, right? and, and what's being invoked? Well, the epiclesis the, is the calling down of the Holy Spirit upon the gifts of bread and wine, that they may become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. Every Western and Eastern liturgy contains this essential prayer. The institution narrative is the full narrative of the Last Supper in which Christ instituted the Eucharist as the new covenant, including the words of consecration, this is my body, this is my blood. Now, in the Catholic Church, there's always been an understanding that this invocation of the Holy Spirit was essential, along with the words of consecration. And we may be tempted to ask exactly when does the bread and wine actually become Jesus' body and blood? Is it at the epiclesis, or is it at the institution narrative? And this has been a source of tension through the history of discussions between East and West in the Church. But the important thing for us to recognize is the essential nature of both. Without the words of consecration, there is no Eucharist. But without the power of the Holy Spirit, there is no Eucharist. And this is absolutely not to say that the Holy Spirit sort of waits for the priest to call on him. The entire Holy Mass is the prayer and working of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But God has designed that his creatures should cooperate with his sacred action. Therefore, the invocation of the Holy Spirit and the words of consecration of the Son are both to the glory of the Father and the making holy of the people, which hopefully we will remember at this point are the two main ends of the holy sacrifice of the Mass. We take our cue of the importance of both elements, the institution narrative and the epiclesis, from the posture of the people at the Holy Mass. Following the preface and the Sanctus, the people kneel, In the Latin rite, uh, the posture of kneeling is twofold, humility and adoration. We kneel in humble adoration because God is sending his Holy Spirit in power to consecrate the bread and the wine to become the most holy Eucharist at the hands of the priest. We're humble because we understand who God is and who we are in relationship to him. And we adore him because it is right and just especially given the miracle that's taking place in front of us. Now, during the Epiclesis, the priest's posture changes as well. He extends his hands, palms facing down, over the gifts of bread and wine to show the calling down of the Holy Spirit. And the bells are also rung at this time to draw our senses' attention to what's happening. Now, during the institution narrative, the priest is engaged in the sacred action of Jesus Christ, When speaking the words of consecration, he bows and speaks in a straight tone. And this is to show that the words are not his own. Rather, that Jesus Christ is speaking through him at that moment. See, back in ancient times, a messenger would visit a foreign king and speak the words of his own master. And the foreign king would know that the words did not belong to the messenger because the messenger would speak them while bent at the waist, so it's the same thing the priest does when he's speaking the words of Jesus. He's he's speaking the institution narrative. He's saying the uh, the story. He's saying, you know, on the night before he was to suffer, he took bread in his holy and venerable hands, and with eyes raised to heaven, to you, O God, as Almighty Father, he's offering this prayer to the Father in the Son through the Spirit. But when he gets to the words of consecration, he bows and he speaks in this monotone. The words of Jesus Christ, it's Jesus speaking through him in a very real sense. And then once the Eucharist is present, the priest genuflects before the King of Kings, now present on the altar. And here in the climax of the mass, the bells are rung three times as if to say, holy, holy, holy. As I mentioned earlier, in Hebrew, there's no grammatical comparatives and superlatives. So to say holier, you would say holy, holy, and to say holiest, you'd say holy, holy, holy. Which brings us to the fourth essential part of the Eucharistic prayer, which is anamnesis. If you'll remember from last week, I talked about liturgical actualization. It's a really important concept that that time and space are are something that's relative to us, right? God is not in time and space. And so for him, everything is happening in the eternal moment. And so by the power of God in the Holy mass, time and space sort of fold in over upon themselves. And we become present in those sacred moments in, in historical events. And this is anamnesis, this Greek word. (laughs) So during the institution narrative, the bread and wine are consecrated separately. First the bread, then the wine, and they become the body and blood of Jesus. The result of separating blood from a body is what? Well, it's death. And so in this way, the institution narrative makes present the passion and death of Jesus. Not uh, not to die again, but it becomes present again. Is this just a metaphor? Is it symbolic? Well, no, far from being merely a symbol, this means the Holy Cross is made present to us in the here and now, outside of time, by the power of God. Rather, we could say that we're transported to the foot of the Holy Cross, where the Son of God shed his blood and life for our sake. And when we begin to see with the eyes of faith that this is a reality and not merely symbolic, we begin to understand anamnesis. Anamnesis in Greek literally means bring to mind. We could also translate it as deliberate recollection. But anamnesis is not, uh, in the context of the liturgy, is more than just a memory or calling to the mind in some abstract way. Through the power of the Holy Spirit and the mediation of Jesus Christ, our high priest, the one sacrifice becomes present once again in an unbloody manner. The word anamnesis is what Jesus says literally in Greek, in the gospel, in the words of consecration when he says, do this in remembrance of me, do this in anamnesis of me. And of course, it's not our remembering. It's not uh, not a human memory that is prone to misremembering and limited perspective. This is an action of Almighty God who sees everything at once perfectly, clearly. And so the anamnesis makes present the sacred action of Jesus Christ to our senses through external signs and symbols. It's a reminder on the surface level, but if we push past the veil, God allows us to see and to receive the full power of his saving mysteries, which were so powerful that they can't be contained in a single moment of history. The cross was 2000 years ago, but it comes present once again at every single mass. What we see as signs and symbols are made truly present to us in reality. And I'm going to talk about this more next week. But of course, after the Eucharistic prayer, the priest puts a piece of the sacred host into the sacred chalice in the fraction rite. In in this action, Adamnesis makes the reunion of the blood and body of Christ, the resurrection, present to us once more. He who died will not die again. The whole Christ is risen, and this is why the faithful receive the full risen Christ in his body, blood, soul, and divinity in every particle of the host or every drop from the chalice. And this brings us to the fifth main essential part of the Eucharistic prayer, which is the intercessions. Intercession means to intervene on behalf of another. From the outside, it should be clear that the Eucharistic prayer must essentially be intercessory because it makes present the saving mysteries of Jesus Christ, who suffered, died, and rose to redeem all mankind. doesn't mean that all mankind will accept that gift, but he did die for all. He made atonement for all. St. Paul says to St. Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is our mediator. He is the Pontifex Maximus, to use uh, an ancient Roman term, the greatest bridge maker. He stands in the gap between mankind and the Father, a gap which was caused by Adam's first sin and perpetuated by every personal sin of every sinner, including you and I. And He is the only way to the Father. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the bridge. And so in the Eucharistic prayer, We see this reality take form, especially with the intercessions. The sacred liturgy is a priestly action. It's a prayer of our high priest, Jesus Christ, active in a special way through the instruments of the ordained minister and the baptized faithful as head and members. The sacred liturgy is the work of God for his glory and for the sanctification of his people and the whole world. And so we pray for the whole world. As the Eucharistic prayer begins, the priest asks in confidence of Jesus Christ for what we need in and through him. The priest asks for the gifts of bread and wine and the personal intentions and sacrifices of those gathered to be accepted and blessed by God. And so in this way, our own personal sacrifices and intentions, as imperfect as they are, are being perfectly offered to the Father in the Son and through the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is interceding for us to the Father. He intercedes for the whole world, beginning with the church. We ask that God may give the church peace, guidance, union, and governance throughout the whole world. Then we offer intercessory prayer for the Pope and for our local bishop. And in the first Eucharistic prayer, there are prayers of intercession for, quote, all those who, holding to the truth, hand on the Catholic and apostolic faith. And so this means, firstly, the whole college of bishops who are successors of the apostles, but it also means all those throughout the entire church, because the church exists in order to evangelize. She exists in order to bring glory to God and full, abundant life to all men and women. And as Jesus says in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to lie and steal and to destroy. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And this happens by Fidelity to the Catholic and apostolic faith, which must be handed on without change or lessening or watering down. And we shouldn't forget the saints as well. Since it's been established by the church that we have recourse to the saints, to the glory of God, then we ought to exercise it. We've previously discussed the one perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, right? On the cross, Jesus Christ earned superabundant merit, to use the phrase of the church. His perfect eternal sacrifice was sufficient to redeem all of mankind because he's God. He can offer a perfect sacrifice. But God has given us the ability to unite our own actions with his perfect action. This is what St. Paul was getting at when he said, we make up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. The merits of those who have come before us, the saints, are united to the cross of Jesus Christ. Their cooperation with God's grace is what allowed them to accept the invitation to eternal life. Because no human action is done in isolation. Our actions have consequences and they affect other people. Therefore, our good actions, our good works, create a ripple effect that positively affect the souls of others. And when applied to the cross of Jesus Christ... These good works share in the superabundant merit of Jesus Christ. This is the essence of what Catholics mean when they say, offer it up. And it's not only the past merits and prayers of the saints that have efficacious power in God's grace. The saints alive in heaven pray for the good of those still below on earth. The souls in purgatory pray for those on earth. The church investigates alleged miracles wrought by God's grace through the intercession of a specific person. And if the miracle is found to be legitimate, then it confirms that the person is in heaven. This is part of the official canonization process of the church. But there's also saints who are not named, maybe our friends and family who have died and who are in God's grace in heaven. So by the merits and prayers of the saints, we are defended from temptation and evil. See, the genius of the saints is found in their fidelity to and love of God. The example of their lives and the fervor of their preaching is a testament to God's goodness and an acclamation of His glory. Even in the midst of suffering, which is sure to come to all of us, we can claim the joy of Jesus Christ. Even if we feel utterly alone, we know that we never are alone. As the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 12.1, uh, Pope Benedict, in his work Space Salvi* on, on the hope of salvation, writes this beautiful line that says, it's never too late, nor is it ever in vain to reach out to the soul of another. And it's just a beautiful line, and it shows us that we ought to pray for one another, even if we think it's too late. Pray anyway. Because as the Pope reminds us, it's never too late, nor is it ever in vain to reach out to the soul of another in prayer. And so with that, let's, let's finish today by looking at the gems of the Holy Mass, the words of consecration. The Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is one prayer of our High Priest Jesus Christ from beginning to end. But even in that one prayer, the words of consecration are precious jewels. These holy words spoken after Jesus has taken ordinary bread in his holy and venerable hands makes his own body present in a mystical way. And mystical does not mean less real. The physical is brought up into the spiritual and transcendent in a way that's hidden to our senses, but very much real. We have to remember the power of the speech of God. When God speaks, things come into being. Think back to Genesis. God said, let there be light, and there was light. So when the God-man, Jesus Christ, says, this is my body, he means it. The bread is no more. The characteristics remain, the, the accidents, as we call them, but the substance underneath the appearances has transformed or shifted. This is the miracle of transubstantiation. Ordinary bread and wine become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. And true, the miracle of the Eucharist is a mystery, though we should be careful to take Jesus at his word and understand that God who made all things visible and invisible can make this reality present to us. When the priest elevates the host after the words of consecration, we are adoring our Eucharistic Lord, fully present under the veil of a sacrament. The Eucharist is the sacrament of sacraments. Baptism orients us towards Holy Communion, as does Confirmation. Penance restores us to union with God to partake worthily of the Blessed Sacrament. Holy Orders and Matrimony are at the service of Communion. Finally, the anointing of the sick is healing for soul and body and can be followed by reception of Holy Communion. Each of these outward showings of God's inner life, his grace, draw from the source of the Eucharist and are oriented to the summit, which is the Eucharist, which makes sense because it's Jesus. It's him. He is the Eucharist. The holy body of Jesus Christ, as it says in Isaiah 53, 5, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. His body was given up for you and for me. He went to the cross for you and for me. But that was not enough for the gratuitous and superabundant love of God. He also established for us the everlasting memorial of his suffering and death by which the Holy Eucharist is made present for us to receive. The Byzantine traditions contain a remarkably beautiful prayer before Holy Communion, which is said every single day at Divine Liturgy. And the first time I heard this, I I was moved to tears. It was so beautiful. And so this, this prayer of the heart is packed with meaning, gratitude, seeking healing for soul and body. And I want to end today with this prayer uh, and then pick up with the words of consecration over the chalice next week and finishing out the rest of the mass and kind of uh, putting a bow on this uh, series of praying the mass. So we're going to end with this prayer uh, from the Byzantine Divine Liturgy. Uh, But before we do that, just a note, if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and family. Uh, if you would actually go back and share session one, let people know that there are going to be five sessions and that you just listen to session four and that uh, they should really listen to this. Um, again, I'm not saying anything that's that's especially mine, right? These are all things that I've learned about the liturgy over the last few years. And uh, like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's what I'm doing. So I, I hope it's been a blessing to you. I hope that this series helps you pray the Mass better, helps you enter into what Christ is doing. Right, because remember, the Mass is the self-offering of the Son to the Father and the Spirit, in which we are invited to take part. And if if for some uh, in some small way, what I presented here has helped you see that more clearly, then then praise God. Because there's nothing better than the Mass. It's the most important thing we do every week, if not every day, and it's for the good of the whole world. Uh, the The world would sooner <coughs> would sooner uh, exist without the sun than without the Holy Mass, as Saint Padre Pio said. So anyway, I I, I leave you with this beautiful um, ending prayer. That is the Byzantine. Uh, prayer from the divine liturgy of uh, the prayer before communion, which everyone says. uh, Very, very beautiful. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord, I believe and profess that you are truly Christ, the Son of the living God, who came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the first. Accept me as a partaker of your mystical supper, O Son of God, For I will not reveal your mystery to your enemies, nor will I give you a kiss as did Judas. But like the thief, I confess to you. Remember me, O Lord, when you shall come into your kingdom. Remember me, O Master, when you shall come into your kingdom. Remember me, O Holy One, when you shall come into your kingdom. May the partaking of your holy mysteries, O Lord, be not for my judgment or condemnation, but for the healing of my soul and body. O Lord, I also believe and profess that this which I am about to receive is truly your most precious body and your life-giving blood, which I pray make me worthy to receive for the remission of all of my sins and for life everlasting. Amen. O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. O God, cleanse me of my sins and have mercy on me. O Lord, forgive me, for I have sinned without number. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever and forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.